I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the Fourth Trimester. I'm Sarah Trott, and I'm here with Esther Gallagher and our guest, Angelique Millette. We have a previous podcast recorded with Angelique, uh, Sleep Part One. This will be Sleep Part Two, so we encourage you to listen to Part One first. However, there's so much to cover with the topic of sleep that we decided to continue our conversation. Um, Angelique has a PhD, and she's dedicated her life to exploring healthy sleep for families. And she's a mama, and we're so honored to have you back as a guest again, Angelique. Oh, it's I'm delighted to be back. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a, a few things on the agenda today, but I thought we would start with the question of what parents often expect in terms of sleep in the first two to six weeks and what's actually reality-based. And I thought, actually, Angelique, I would start out and talk about that yes. and then jump in with you. Is that okay with you? That would be super. I would love okay. to hear your experiences that you've had as a postpartum doula. Sure. So often parents have framed sleep in terms of an, an image of an infant, a newborn, that is a sleeping one, right? Because they're always sleeping in the pictures. <laughs> um, why is that? <laughs> um, however, as often as not, parents have no idea what that actually is like. And often as well, they feel quite exhausted at the end of pregnancy and then getting through perhaps a long labor where they didn't necessarily get much sleep. They're imagining that they're going to sleep a lot somehow and feel well restored. Now, the fact is that in most cases, Brand newborn babies in the first 24 to 48 hours will have one long sleep. Four to eight hours of sleep is actually not unusual, and it's also not wrong. It's good. Babies do that. Uh, they have usually plenty of brown fat. They're going to be able to survive without eating constantly. And when they do eat, they're getting colostrum, which is quite rich, inoculates their digestive tract. And while it probably has nothing to do with whether they sleep or not, it is sustaining and it is all they get and all they need in the first 48 hours. In the meantime, mom is, her body's going through many, many changes and she will be making milk sometime on day three or four. So all of this is very natural for babies to come out and sleep. However, what most people experience in the first 24 to 48 hours, especially if they've had given birth in the hospital setting, is that their sleep is disrupted. If they were going to sleep with their baby, 
Their sleep is being disrupted by every hour or more checkups from nurses and or doctors. So that restorative sleep that most parents could be getting doesn't happen. In the meantime, also, parents are quite hormonal driven in the sense that there's a lot of adrenaline and sometimes cortisol (laughs) and often a lot of oxytocin. And so whether or not they sleep, they are sort of biologically programmed to be alert to small sounds, the kinds newborn babies make. And so parents are attuned to their new baby. And so any sounds babies make are likely to wake them. Or they just might feel very, very tuned up and tuned in and not very sleepy. And that's also fairly natural, so long as it isn't how they spend 100% of their days in the coming weeks. So going forward into the next few weeks, babies are going to be sleeping short periods, 20 minutes to three hours at a stretch, and those won't be very predictable in the first week. If they become predictable at all in the first two weeks, it's not going to be the first week that they're predictable. So if parents are sleeping when their babies sleep, they will get a lot of sleep. But if they're insisting on texting and talking and watching TV and doing chores and things like that, it's highly unlikely they will get enough restorative sleep. And this is particularly true for new mothers who have gone through the birth process and are healing and recovering and establishing their milk supply in those first two weeks and breastfeeding what feels like 24-7. So that's my intro (laughs) to sleep in the first two to six weeks. It shifts and changes over those next four weeks. Babies go through a growth spurt or two. That is often disruptive to what parents thought was the sleep pattern. And then a new sleep pattern is established. Of course, Angelique, you and I get to see parents who haven't managed to settle into any kind of restorative sleep cycles with their babies. And we know that that can be pretty devastating, if not just difficult. Very similarly to what you've described, I try to set some realistic expectations and do a little education. I think that parents are bombarded with images, opinions, information, misinformation, myths about infant sleep. And so they know that it's going to be tough. At the same time, they also are looking for strategies to implement right away. Mm -hmm. And I should just establish that a lot of the families that reach out to me, I feel fairly lucky and blessed in that way because a lot of them are waiting until their babies are a little bit older. Usually four to six months is when most families are reaching out, but I do get families who are reaching out in the first six weeks. And when I work with a family that has a young one that's under six weeks of age, then it's a lot about education and sleep routines and just observing their baby's cues and communication. Really, I think that's the most simple thing. Mm -hmm. I think it is the most simple thing. And yet, isn't it interesting how people don't see those cues and don't understand that? I don't know that I, as a first-time parent, really fully understood what my sleepy baby was indicating when she was sleepy. 
And I also felt that she was very wakeful, that it was super easy for, to wake her up. And I don't know that that was actually true, but I'm curious because of that experience, whether you work with parents who imagine their babies just can't sleep for more than 15 minutes or something like that. <laughs> I do work with those parents and I give them permission or encourage them to hold their babies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear about holding babies for sleeping. And I'll focus here specifically on napping when I describe that. I, I especially I see a lot of moms really concerned that they've got to put their newborns down for naps. I do a little bit of saying, hey, it's pretty normal for your baby to want to be held by you. And so let's find some realistic ways for that to happen, but also give you a break. I really appreciate that, Angelique, because, you know, I would say to people, well, I just can't put her down. She'll wake up. And they would say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it was some terrible fault <laughs> of mine, uh, which was just distressing. It is. It and really is. Um, I know I've helped new parents a lot with how to get positioned in bed so that they feel really safe holding their babies and drifting off to sleep themselves. And that would have been nice if somebody had kind of shown me how to tuck myself in. Well, I certainly appreciated that. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know the difference. And I think that I had a lot of questions that you were able to answer, but had someone not been there to answer my questions, I would have felt a ton of trepidation around holding my baby while she's sleeping or I'm sleeping because of the messaging that I think is, is popular around, you know, it's the danger of holding your baby while sleeping. But I couldn't have imagined anything more natural than my infant baby who's hungry and tired nursing and falling asleep in my arms. Right. That's, that's what they do. Yeah. It's what we'd all do. Yes. If we were given the opportunity. <laughs> yes. I know I would. No one's offering. <laughs> I had an expectation before my baby was born that maybe I would be tired all the time because she would be awake all the time. She actually slept more than I thought she would which was a nice surprise, I think. Not to set any listeners up to believe that their baby's going to sleep all night right off the bat, but <laughs> because I was trained to sleep when my baby slept during the day as well as at night, I felt fairly rested. I felt like a zombie, but I also felt fairly rested. <laughs> yeah. And I think that feeling, you called it feeling like a zombie, I think normalizing that feeling a little bit for new moms is important that if you felt like your old normal self, what would you do, Sarah? You'd go run a marathon. <laughs> well, That's your baby true. needs to eat a little more often than that. So, <laughs> you know, if you're up and ready to go in the first six weeks, your baby won't get fed, <laughs> honestly. And so I try to let parents know, like, no, you're feeling slowed down because nature knows better than you right now. And, <laughs> and you need to be going at baby speed, not adult single people speed. I remember the feeling that, that oxytocin was, <laughs> it just grounded me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want to move. I just wanted to just hold my daughter and just stare at her and just 
Yeah. It was, it, it's such a slow feeling. And I, I was blessed to be able to nurse her for quite some time. I remember the feeling of the oxytocin each time I nursed her, even as I got back into working and doing chores and all the things that kept me busy, but it slowed me down. I, that oxytocin, as soon as I latched her on, even as, as she got to be close to one, I could feel it like, wow, it just totally slows me down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a wonderful feeling and I look forward to it and enjoy it. Yes, yes. So you were saying, Angelique, you have a handful of parents who do come to you within the first six weeks. What kind of questions are they asking? Well, I, I, I feel, like I said, I feel very lucky that they're not asking to sleep train their babies. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and they are asking, well, when is it appropriate? We've heard it's appropriate as the baby gets older. They're looking ahead a little bit, contemplating the end of maternity leave and the, you know, the new normal and the transition and what that's all going to look like which I really appreciate. So what I do a little bit of is explaining sleep routines. And, you know, this is one of those kind of a teachable moment where simply describing the arc of a baby's behavior from when they wake up from a, say a nap into waking, feeding, observing, being stimulated and taking in their environment and then helping a parent recognize their baby's sleep cues as the arc starts to complete and they fall back into a moment of what we call the sleep window and their body releases the sleepy time hormones and they're ready to sleep. And helping a parent follow that arc is like, it can really change things. And it gives them a real important skill set for starting to understand the way that a baby communicates and this very subtle dance between a parent and a baby for picking up those cues. It'll be a couple of years before a child can actually say, hey, mom, I'm really tired. <laughs> Mama, I want to lay down. That's what my daughter told me the other day. At age three, and she'd not slept well the night before, Mama, I'm tired. I want to lay down for my nap. Mm-hmm. But nice. boy, it takes years to get to that point. So very early, those very, very early little signals and cues. It's like the very beginning of that communication that occurs with the baby showing the sleep signs and a parent observing. So we try to do a little bit of education around that. There's a a natural window that occurs somewhere around 90 minutes of awake time for a newborn. That means from the end of their last sleep cycle until the beginning of the next sleep cycle, that Mm. 90 minutes is about the time they can be awake. Uh, 90 minutes is about the time that they start to present these sorts of sleep cues, but it could be as short as an hour. It could be as long as two hours. Funny, I'm really big on cues, but I also know that we're clock driven <laughs> for better, for worse. Yeah. It's kind of wired into us. So I mm-hmm. say it, you know, watch the clock. It's okay to say that and mm-hmm. to watch it, watch the cues and watch the clock so that you get a little bit of information and feedback about what your baby may need next in terms of sleep. Well, and it can be reinforcing, right? Like, okay, it turns out that my baby's sort of a, 45 minute to an hour kid or an hour and 45 minute kid. And, and maybe it's 45 minutes late in the day and longer early in the day. Now that I've done this for a few days, I kind of have a sense, okay, here are the longer stretches, here are the shorter stretches. And if I am thinking that there's something I'd like to do (laughs) between breastfeeds and sleep time with the baby, then this is my window. Right. The baby's awake during this window. And it could just be take that shower that you haven't taken. But right. it's just 
can be helpful to parents to kind of get in touch with that or visit with friends, right? Like they can send messages like, you know, I have this window, it's boundaried. You know, I'd love to have a phone chat with you, but it's only going to work if. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that we're clock driven. I've heard people talk about a three hour cycle. Mm -hmm. What is that? Well, the three hour cycle includes the awake time, feed time, and sleep time. And that's when we talk about the three hour cycle, we're we are taking into consideration that a baby would feed every three hours. And I would say that for newborns, that's likely not always <laughs> going to be the case. There's a lot more variability. There's cluster feeds. There's a wide range of variability. I would say that we certainly though start to see more of a three-hour cycle in a lot of babies by the time they get to three to six months, which coincidentally is timed around the organization of circadian rhythms. And that, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but that we stop seeing nighttime bowel movements and we start to see a lengthening of the first sleep cycle of the night. And one of the things I will say to parents is get your newborn outside. It's, it's exposure to sunlight that organizes circadian rhythms. And has all kinds of benefits. For the parents yeah, as well. For the yeah. parents. and Yeah. Well, and I even start Angelique with those newborns and say to parents, you know, Babies are going to sleep anyway. It's okay to open the curtains <laughs> during the day. That's right. <laughs> it's not going to impede their sleep cycles, but it is going to help them acclimate. So the circadian rhythm of waking up when the sun rises, I would love to talk more about that. Is it reasonable to expect a baby to sleep in as a concept? Newborns do, right? They like to sleep between six and 10 really deeply, mm. I find. You know, there's a cluster feed in the early hours and then they go back down. And that's some, for some babies, that's the long, deep sleep of the day. Yeah. Just as the rest of the world gets really busy, I think mammal babies are really smart. They kind of like hunker down <laughs> and stay out of the way. Right. <laughs> Between two and six weeks, that starts to be a little more obvious to parents, right? That, oh yeah, babies just are quiet in the morning. And and often what's challenging in, on my end of the work is saying, yes, you're still recovering, you know, mm -hmm. bounding out of bed at seven to take your shower and do all your stuff because the baby's sleeping means you may find it almost intolerable the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so true. I remember the 12-hour rule. That's what we, when I was a midwife, ah, 23 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then I took that into my doula work. But it really is true that asking a mom to stay in bed for 12 hours. If her baby goes to bed at 8, she's in bed at 8 and stays yes. in bed until 8 the next morning. Yeah. Even if she cycles through periods of being awake to feed her baby, that mm -hmm. she's had 12 hours of resting her body. And you think that holds true? Definitely. Yeah, I think there are those babies in the first few weeks that you may be up with actually on your feet for an hour or so at night because they're fussy. And that's why you don't preclude napping during the day. And what I find is, you know, moms are often very much awake during the night for feeds in the first two weeks. They haven't quite figured out how to be comfortable enough, how to 
quiet themselves enough. Again, I think there might be something very biological about that, that you're, you're getting to know your baby during mm-hmm. those breastfeeds. So you're supposed to be a little bit on the more wakeful side. So I wouldn't be telling a mom 12 hours at night, no hours during the day. I wouldn't want to imply that you're not napping during the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I also say, you know, it's okay if you're in bed more rather than less, that mm-hmm. would be good. There's plenty of time to be on your feet. Mm-hmm. You have to get up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, you know, it's okay to rest. Yeah, it is. It is okay to rest. Your body needs it. And, you know, those newborns, we don't even call it nighttime sleep. It's just considered, they're just napping. Yeah. Day and night. That's Day that's. And night. How we look at those cycles until they start to differentiate and their sleep becomes more like ours at around three to four months of age. And then they have a day napping and nighttime sleep. When we look at those patterns, when we actually study those cycles over 24 hours, it's just shorter, long naps that they're taking. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Is that following the pattern of what they were doing in the womb? That's right. That's exactly right. And they fall into REM sleep upon falling to sleep. And it's, again all, that's why we call it napping because it really isn't like a sleep cycle, like what we're having. The anatomist in me is always really interested. I'm particularly interested in the pineal gland and I would be, you know, of course I don't want anybody to actually do these anatomical studies, but when we have the kind of imaging that's easy to do and non-invasive, Wouldn't it be interesting to be able to see how the pineal gland is developing in the first six weeks? Oh, absolutely. First 12 weeks, really, because Mm -hmm. I believe it is. Like it's not set in any way yet, the way we think of adults or nighttime sleepers being set. That's right. It's not set at all. It's not. I think we're learning so much about sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's such interesting research coming out about sleep that we have so much more to learn about this really delicate interplay and how we are quite connected to the rhythms of the day and the night. Which are the rhythms of the planet. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, why babies are waking up at five, six o'clock in the morning this time of year when the morning light is waking them or they're having a harder time falling asleep at bedtime Mm -hmm. because it's light until 8 or 9 p.m. Well, the rest of the world would be taking the siesta in the hot part of the day. So... If you were going to get any work done or play, (laughs) you would get up at 5.30 and enjoy the cool hours, right? That's right. And snooze from 11 to 2 or more (laughs) and um, get back up when it starts to cool down again and play, play, play until you're too tired. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like there are options here and it keys around aligning one's schedule to the baby, right? Either the planet. (laughs) Yeah. Or the planet, right? Doing that or not perhaps is the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, Sarah, with my little daughter, there wasn't a choice. Nobody else was going to get up with her. (laughs) So it was, we got up, you know, if I could get to bed and not be too disrupted other than to breastfeed her, that didn't seem like a terrible thing. You know, it was pretty fun, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and for me, as tired as I might be, 
I love hearing the little cry mm-hmm. because it means I get to have a cuddle and be, have that time right. with my baby. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's tricky when we're thinking about, oh, and then I have, you know, 12 hours at work that <laughs> I'm supposed to be cognizant <laughs> during. Yeah. Well, I notice that a lot of people are doing a lot of their work and their work includes being in front of a computer screen. Mm-hmm way into the night, well, into the wee hours of the morning. And I see that in couples, right? I One of the two, usually the non-pregnant, hasn't just given birth person, has a job where their schedule is links up with Australia or some darn thing like that. And so their sleep cycles are very different. Do you ever work with those families and... How do you help them? Is can, is there help? <laughs> I do work with those families. I work with families from all over the world, and it's become a global economy mm-hmm. with families living in a specific geographic location, but their hours of business are in a different time zone. And I don't have a great solution. Yeah. You know, that's really the truth of it, that it's a little bit of... You know, families that may have shorter sleep hours at night because they're working until two or three o'clock in the morning and then they make up for it with a nap in the middle of the day. Yeah. I'm definitely seeing a lot more of those families. Mm-hmm. Or the one that I see a lot are families that have to do a, a daycare drop off in the morning. And the babies, you know, we've got babies that are lo- uh, what we call larks and babies that are owls. And so we've got early risers and then babies that could sleep later and then you got a baby that needs to be woken up in the morning because they've got a long commute to a daycare drop-off. So there's, I would say that families are trying to put together schedules that work for the benefit of the family and that, and sometimes babies lose out in terms of their sleep needs. Yeah. And so we, without dismissing the parents, you know, conflict with trying to get it all to work, we try to find some reasonable ways to just shift the schedule a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes it means that we encourage a parent to come home from work and put the baby to sleep for bedtime, push dinner out a little bit later mm-hmm. because the baby's just so tired and, the, the, you know, it's a late arrival home from work at 6 or 7 p.m. and the baby is an early riser, so they, they need to go down at 6 or 7. Yeah. Little adjustments like that. that. I mean, we do work individually with families. What we certainly don't do is tell families that all babies have to be asleep at 7 p.m. and all babies wake at 7 a.m. And oh, I thank hear, goodness. <laughs> I mention it because I hear a lot of sleep consultants saying that. It's sort of their, yeah. their battle cry. It's the 7 to 7, 12 hours at night. There's no literature or science that supports that at all. Right. At all. And it's so attractive as a concept because when I see those <laughs> posts and forums in mother's groups online, and someone says, oh, I need help. My baby's not sleeping. And someone responds and they say, oh, call such and such. You know, within two days, it was 7 to 7. And it's, and then it, and it sounds like a miracle and a, a dream come true. And, and then lots of people respond and say, great, great. That's what we need. And, um, I think that it's a huge desire right, among new moms because it sounds fantastic. And without knowing any better, why not believe it? Would you classify that as misinformation maybe? Oh, it's totally misinformation. There's no science behind it at all. Yeah. And I just, I have to say, whenever I hear anything like that, I imagine 
baby torture, honestly. I do. Like, I can't imagine that those children who previously weren't sleeping seven to seven and now suddenly are, that there wasn't something really insidious happening. <laughs> and they're not actually sleeping seven no. to seven. That's what's interesting. They just don't dare get up. They're not signaling when they are awake. But in fact, point in fact, you know, there's good research to show that if I've talked about this before, forgive me, but there's, you know, there's a great study that they put video cameras in the nurseries of those, all these babies. And sure enough, they were all waking up at night. They just weren't signaling. Mm -hmm. So they, they may be waking and it's 6 a.m., but they're just not signaling. They're rolling around and playing in the crib. So, you know, the take home is that newborns and babies have all kinds of variations in their sleep needs. And in our work that, you know, with families, it's about helping families identify what their baby's unique sleep needs or individual sleep needs are, and then make adjustments if we see some areas of concern. So then just to put it out there, for a healthy, signaling, happy baby, <laughs> right? when do you think they would start to not wake up in the middle of the night? Well, you know, what we generally see, what the research bears out is that babies somewhere around six months, four to six months of age, are going to start to have the ability to sleep longer sleep cycles and or settle back to sleep in between sleep cycles. So the, the actual definition for sleeping through the night is a six-month-old that could sleep five to eight hours before they need to feed. Oh, that sounds about right. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, to try to find that in the literature, I mean, there's so many sleep books are opinion-based, and they suggest it's 12 hours at night and no feeds. But, in fact, the science shows us that we may very well be feeding a baby until they're six months or older. Well, I have a seventh-month-old who's waking and feeding <laughs> twice a night, and That's she right. seems very happy with that. That's right. <laughs> So we, we really look at it in terms of what's this baby need? What's this mama need? What's this family need? Yeah. And we make, we certainly can help families to wean a baby at night, but we step back and make sure that that's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. And, and of course the opposite of that is the belief that we could help a baby sleep at night and that if we help them sleep, it means they have to wean for breastfeeding. That's simply not true either. And we do a lot of debunking that, but we, that, Breastfeeding and a baby sleeping are there. They support one another that we can do that. Yeah. You know, another thing that I hear, and frankly, I just heard this from, I will say, a male pediatrician at St. Luke's. Um, he tells this to all his, his patients when he's checking them out is this correlation between a baby sleeping long hours at night and their weight, how much a baby weighs. And I don't know that I found that to be true in my life, and I'm not sure I'm finding that to be true in my clients' lives either, that, you know, 8 pounds or 10 pounds or 12 pounds are somehow a magic number at which a baby will no longer need to nurse at night or will no longer want to nurse at night. And I'm wondering, I don't feel like I have a very sophisticated view of this. And maybe you could um, give us some sense of what that means or whether or not there's any merit in it. 
Well, I'm glad you're mentioning this because it's something that I also debunk. <laughs> this myth that at a certain way, the baby's going to sleep through the night and not feed, but there's actually no literature that supports that. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no science to support that. It, and you'll hear, it, it makes sense because you'll hear sometimes it's 12 pounds, sometimes it's 14 pounds. So, mm. so what we look for is how does a baby put on weight over time? Because you could have a baby that's born at say 10 pounds, but they're having a hard time putting on weight. Right. So they may be 12 pounds, but we certainly aren't going to deprive them of nutrition at night if they're really slow to weight, uh, gain weight. So we really, so yeah, we really look at it. Every baby is, is individually. And we, and we ask for birth weight. We ask for a current weight. Uh, we're less interested in the actual curve. We're more interested in how they're putting weight on over time, feeding method transfer of milk if they're breastfeeding. Uh, reflex can certainly uh, impact how much feeding they're going to do. And if they're having small feeds because of reflux, again, we don't want to deprive them of milk at night. And we would keep some feeds at night. So it's, it's really a dynamic way to, to consider sleep. We really take into account the full picture. But to answer your question, there's no science that supports that. And it's, it's a, you'll hear it a lot. Oh, at 14 pounds, she should sleep through the night. But <laughs> There's, you know, what if she was born, you know, at 10 pounds and she's now 14 pounds at two months, those babies are quite hungry actually. Yeah. And I've seen them keep night feeds a lot longer than we'd ever think. And those babies needed solids a lot earlier and they were including meat-based solids a lot earlier in their diet because they really put on weight quickly. Yeah. So genetics really plays a part in this too. Yeah. Well, and I... I get concerned for those big babies because it sort of, to me, signals perhaps a diabetic mother and going long periods without stable blood sugar doesn't seem like a good idea to me for any reason, let alone sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you consider there's eight growth spurts in the first year, you know, what we try to do is we, we're, we are really reshaping uh, and, and shifting that belief that it's like you just cut out a night feed and you'll never hear from them again. You really want parents to know that growth spurts, babies' brains need milk. <laughs> They're yeah. quite hungry during a growth spurt. They're laying down critical pathways brain for brain development. And what feeds those neurons is milk. It's food. So they may be quite hungry even at 10 months when they go through growth spurt. It's not because they're manipulating a parent. And again, I don't think we believe that, but you'll hear it in the surround. Oh, yeah. The three of us today know, but you'll, you know, parents, sometimes that's what they're hearing. And that baby's quite hungry. They're going through a growth spurt and they need to have some food for a couple nights. Yeah. So it's our hope and the premise of the Millet Method is to really help parents see that sleep is dynamic. Angelique, I also um, deal with moms who are saying they're not getting back to sleep at night. And as often as not, it's because they won't eat at night. You know, their bodies are on a 24-hour, you know, making milk 24 hours, metabolizing quickly. And they think they can get by with breakfast, lunch, and dinner and not eat at night. And their blood sugar is low. And I say, you know, your brain knows if it needs food it wakes you up to go find it. And during this special phase of breastfeeding, you probably need some calories at night, if nothing else, for your brain to go, okay, 
<laughs> we can quiet down and go back to sleep. Self-care. Yeah. A lot of, I, I could personally relate to that. We just put it all into our babies and we forget, hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is around the clock. Yeah. Especially when our little newborns are in a growth spurt and they're eating constantly. Mm-hmm. And we forget to feed ourselves. And I think that's where, you know, enlisting your partner, helpers, et cetera, to make that snack tray that right Sarah could go into the get from the fridge in the middle of the night if she had to, if no one else had brought it to her. I'm just going to have another baby. So Esther can be my postpartum doula. Okay. I mean, I'm hearing snack trays. I'm hearing about like the, the, the family bed nesting training. I'm like, Hey, this yeah. is sounding good. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> it's wonderful. It is good. I mean, I feel like new it's parents wonderful. really don't understand their own needs. And that's where I try to focus. I mean, breastfeeding and baby care is great. I'm not going to do that for you. I'm certainly happy to help you, but learning how you're going to be taking care of yourself when I'm no longer there is also handy. That's right. I think gets people through the long haul. That's that's right. Yeah. And I just want to send the message out to women who do night doula work that if you're not bringing your mama's a snack tray in the middle of the night, you could really you could really transform your practice by a simple thing of yes. helping them stay nourished at night. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I loved having the food available. And it was only after I ate it that I appreciated having it, if that makes oh. sense. Mm-hmm. It right. really does. Yeah. I had no idea I wanted it and then it would I would wipe the plate clean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so you said something about diabetic moms. Well, babies don't automatically have diabetes, but they do sometimes have difficulty um, maintaining their blood sugar at birth, that's kind of an indicator of Mm. pancreatic difficulties. I don't think babies are necessarily born diabetic, but I think they're in a kind of a pre-diabetic state. They are. If they're they're what we consider hypoglycemic, Mm -hmm. Uh, they have, you know, too much sugar. So they're managed and usually they're just fine. It's just management of the sugar. And as long as they start to feed, there's not an issue. But the point is that babies need to feed. They need, they're hungry. Yeah. And just because they're big doesn't mean they need to feed any less. That's exactly the point. And I'm glad you're reiterating it, that it's that we make an assumption because a baby's born at 10 pounds that they could sleep through the night without feeding. And in fact, I don't think that's true at all. I also think that we're more likely to overfeed those babies as well. That, mm-hmm. uh, and really, and and make the mistake to feed them too much. So, just a lot of concern is on babies that are underweight, which is you know obviously there's reasons for that. Uh, but I think babies that are that are putting on a lot of weight quickly, that you know we we shouldn't just assume that they're ready to sleep through the night without feeding at one or two months of age because they were ten pounds at birth. Yeah, or they're putting on weight quickly. Well, and, and I would again sort of parallel that to a mother who is probably poorly nourished. You know, she probably the reason she's developed gestational diabetes is because she's pre-diabetic in her daily life. And there's just then too much stress on the 
blood sugar system in the pancreas. And so she needs extra special, healthy, healthy, healthy nutrition in the postpartum period to kind of get her body stabilized and hopefully produce a healthier milk for her baby. That's going to mean appropriate weight gain for that baby as well. Angelique, I know you have a lot of fabulous YouTube videos available for anyone who's interested in hearing kind of in-depth, step-by-step advice on the Millet method and sleep training for when their baby is appropriate, which is, I think you're saying four to six months. And last time we spent a little while talking about like a more modified, gentle version of an interval method. And we didn't really talk about the no cry method. Is there anything you would want to touch on there? Oh, sure. I developed my no low cry method, gosh, 22 years ago. When I started out, I, I didn't feel comfortable using using methods that included crying until I was uh, quite sure about the research and, and my ability to really modify those methods. So I developed a no low cry method. I call it the rinse and repeat method. Mm-hmm. It's a great method. It is all about very gradual, slow change. Uh, high on parent responsiveness, meaning that the parent is very slowly separating from the baby. Baby's very slowly separating from the parent to get to sleep. And so it's a very slow process of, let's say a baby's used to sleeping on the parent or sleeping and feeding, and the parent's looking to increase separation. That's what really sleep changes are about, increasing separation, if you think about it. What we do with that method is we slowly help the baby learn to move further away from the parent's body, from mom's body, and slowly learn to move away from having the breast or the bottle in their mouth for feeding. But when we do that, we still keep the parent in proximity using, say, patting or shushing or massage to send the message to the baby that even though I'm not holding you or even though I'm not feeding you for sleeping, I'm still right here to help you sleep. I'm still close to you. I would say that the method, it's not great for a parent that likes instant gratification. (laughs) Uh, It's not great for a parent that's very sleep deprived. The method could take two to six weeks to get results. And sleep training goes very quickly. It's three to seven nights of of much more quick separation between the mother and the baby or the parents and the baby. So it's something to keep in mind. And interestingly, a handful of babies don't like the no low cry method. And we know they don't like it because they they actually get really unhappy. They arch, they push off mom's body as she's doing the method. And what we found is that temperamentally, some babies really like to be in control. And when the separation is very slow from the parent, it upsets them. They actually do better if they can kind of control that separation and kind of just do it. Mm. So we take into account temperament. We look at how sleep-deprived the family is. We look at parenting philosophy. We look at the age of the baby. We wouldn't, this is a method you could certainly use with the baby that's just in the first month because it's, again, it's, you know, you could teach a parent to put a baby down into, say, pack and play or co sleep or bassinet for sleep, but have the parent close by to just slowly move away from the baby. So it's a great method. And like I said, it's been 22 years that I've been using that method. It can be used for bedtimes, it can be used for nights, it can be used for naps, it can be used for, say, 30-minute naps. If a baby wakes up after a short 30-minute nap and the parent observes that the baby's still tired, their eyes are closed, they're crying, they're kind of like saying, hey, I'm still ready to sleep more. And by the way, the the length of the first sleep cycle for the nap is about 15 to 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Then the parent 
can pick the baby up and very slowly help them back to sleep. So without making eye contact with the baby, without because eye contact is about engagement and stimulation. So we teach the parent, close your eyes and just rock and help your baby settle back to sleep and then slowly put them down again. But don't separate right away. Don't just walk away. Keep your weighted hands right on your baby's body. Do some forehead massage and let your baby know that you're still connected. Very gradual way of separating, holding a baby for sleeping or feeding a baby for sleeping. And if they cry the moment they're laid down? Then it's a pick back up. And we ask the parent to follow their intuition. If a parent is not comfortable with crying, which we understand, and we say, pick them right back up. And that's why it's called the rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. The rinse part is the pick up and the rocking or the slow dancing, that, that motion to help your baby settle back into a sleepy state. And then the repeat would be the parent putting the baby back down onto a flat surface, i.e. like the crib or bassinet. So you, you know, could potentially do 20 minutes or three to five cycles of repeating, you know, the rinsing and the repeating pick up and move your baby and then repeat, put them back down and weighted hands on them. And then we say, if it hasn't worked after three to five cycles or 20 minutes and just pick them up and then rock them to sleep and then try again the next day. It's very gradual, very gradual separation. And about 25% of the parents in my practice will use that method. I find it works really well when a parent has the support of a partner. And like I said, if the, if the family is not too terribly sleep deprived, uh, it's also a good fit. If the family is really sleep deprived, it may not be a great fit because it just takes a long time, which I can appreciate. Angelique, this is a funny little hack and I'm wondering what you think about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, when I have parents say, oh, you know, I put them down for a nap in their bassinet and they just always wake right up. And of course, this is again, usually in the first couple of weeks. And I say, well, think about it. You're asking them to go from a 98.6 degree surface to what might be a 40 degree surface. You know, I mean, it probably is about 60, maybe 70, but still that's a 20 plus degree drop. Yeah. <laughs> so warm up that surface, use a hot water bottle to keep it warm while you're nursing them or whatever you're doing, you know, and then remove that warmer and put, put them down on that surface and put your hand on their back for a few minutes before you walk away. And that always, not always, but that usually gets a good response. And again, I'm not encouraging parents not to hold their babies to sleep. This is more just like, let's make sense of this from the baby's perspective. Right. That's right. You know, they're still not going to hear a heartbeat and breathing and they may not love it either. You know, they may just really not be able to make that transition quite yet, but it's something to try. Right. That's right. That's right. I think it's a great hack. <laughs> <laughs> what you're talking about in terms of this gradual me method is just so intuitive. I mean, from a certain vantage point, perhaps like intuitively, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. You don't, as adults, having been raised in a culture that may have said to our parents, you know, that's it. They're this old. You put them in the bed, in the room, you shut the door, you walk away um, and you don't look back until eight in the morning or whatever it is. It might not be intuitive, right? We didn't have the experience of being held 
on the body as we're gestating on the outside. But I think there is something intuitive if we're thinking in terms of what's the experience from a newborn's point of view or a three month old for that matter, you know, they're, they are fetuses on the outside. They are experiencing what we call extra uterine gestation. Mm -hmm. They're not ready to be detached from a heartbeat and a food supply (laughs) for any length of time really yet. Yeah. So really being there physically for them does make sense. Mm -hmm. It is what they require. And if they don't have it, even if they're quiet, they're on high alert. They're ma- baby mammals. They're very prone to predators, <laughs> you know, and they know it in, in there somewhere. And so they don't feel safe if they can't hear that heartbeat and feel mm-hmm. that, hear that breathing and mm-hmm. feel that warmth. Why would they? Right. You know, that's right. And we love holding them all the time. Thank goodness, right? That's what they need. Thank Uh, goodness we love holding them. We do. We do. I liked liked your hack. I tried it. I got a little heating pad from Amazon that was inexpensive. And I did struggle with reaching into the crib and removing it with one hand while holding a baby in the other. (laughs) So anyone who wants to try this, I encourage you to try it with a partner who Mm. knows that's going to happen because I mm-hmm. it was tricky to balance. Yeah, to we'll do just it by yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's easier mm-hmm. with a water bottle. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so let's talk about naps. So I'll just do a little setup that, you know, we've talked a little bit about how newborns, their sleep cycles, we, you know, we'll call them nap cycles, basically day and night uh, napping. And then around three to four months, it starts to adjust into more distinct sleep cycles like us. The naps, newborns, are they're really just napping. And then as they start to transition into day sleep and night sleep, for four to six-month-olds, we can expect something like three or four naps a day. And then six to nine-month-olds, it'll go down to two naps a day. So I know we're focused on that fourth trimester. One of the things that I encourage parents to do is to see if early on they can try to put a baby down for a nap using the rinse and repeat method. So again, that really slow separation and a good time of the day to try something like this is the first nap of the day when babies are, they're much better at trying something new. Mm-hmm. Later in the day, I'd say after 2 p.m., it's much more difficult for babies. They're kind of maxed out. They've taken in a lot of information. They've done all, there's been a lot of stimulation. And so they're more likely to need a lot of holding and, and extra help to nap. But if you try this early in the day, you might find, especially that first nap of the day or the second nap of the day, that your baby is a little bit more amenable to accepting you putting them down with weighted hands on them and staying in close contact. Typical nap lengths, especially in the first four months, are anywhere from 20 minutes to a couple hours. And again, that's that kind of variability that we'd expect. You may only get one two-hour nap, and then the rest are short 20, 30-minute naps. And that's very normal. That starts to shift as babies get to be four to six months. We start to see at least two long naps a day. And I should say a long nap is 45 minutes to a couple hours. So that's just a little bit of setting some expectations or just education about daytime sleep. The amount of time a newborn is awake is anywhere from say 45 minutes to 90 minutes. But your four to six month olds could be awake anywhere from 90 minutes to two and a half hours. So the amount of time they can be awake starts to lengthen as they get older. 
and you know, we're here to talk about just the fourth trimester, but just to put things in perspective between 12 to 18 months, they all go down to one nap a day. And then starting around age two and a half to three, they start to not nap. I would say those that early on, those the feeling that a parent will have is that they're chasing naps constantly. It's a real feeling. Babies need a nap, and they absolutely need a nap. That's when the brain is storing information. All that input, all that interesting, you know, all the things that have captured their attention during the time they were awake, when they're napping, that gets stored. So think of napping as storage time for your babies. Um, they desperately need it. Yeah. And boy, it's interesting what they're taking in. <laughs> you know, it's all background to us often, That's right? right? The That's stuff right. and, and none of it is for them. And, and I oh. think it's easy to forget that babies, you know, are doing that. You know, is there any correlation between when a child toddles and then walks in terms of their development and their sleep patterns at all? I haven't seen any scientific research, but I have a my, my own anecdotal observation, <laughs> uh, which is that it's genetically based. I love asking that question, when did your parents start to walk, to see if there's some trends. Have you noticed anything with your families that you support? No, mine's more familial too. Like mm -hmm. I was a nine month walker. My daughter walked at nine months. Her son right. walked at nine months and right. his dad walked at nine months. I think his dad ran at nine months. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a real athletic guy and so is the grandson. And, um, interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, I think like you've pointed to in other places like temperament and capacity, like how, what's your physicality? What's your emotionality? That's you right. know, um, how does that need to be met by some downtime? Interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. Angelique, you are available to parents who have questions or who are interested in following up with you directly via your website. They can search for your name and find you and you're available to do consultation. Is that right? That's right. We've got a website. It's angeliquemillette.com. And I provide home visit consultations, phone Skype consultations. I also teach classes and I've trained a, a wonderful group of uh, practitioners who reside around the country, around the U.S. And they're also teaching the Millette method in their communities, which is incredibly exciting. We have our first uh, member who's in Canada, in Toronto. Wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, so it's really exciting to be part of a, a groundswell of what I just feel so blessed that exceptional practitioners who have a real progressive thinking about um, sleep and how to support families. Great. And you also have your own sleep swaddle that you created, and that's probably available as well. That's right. That's right. The heart swaddle. It's a hands up swaddle. Nice. Um, I'm a big believer in, in bringing babies hands up to fetal tuck position for swaddling. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a two-in-one, so it's a combo swaddle and sleep sack, so you can remove the swaddle when baby no longer needs a swaddling. And then we have the webinars as well. Those are on my website, and they cover all kinds of topics for babies and toddlers. So angeliquemillette.com is the website. Perfect. Thank Wonderful. you again for spending this time with us. Yes. Oh. Wonderful as always. It's <laughs> wonderful to, to spend the time with you. Thank you so much for inviting me and really wonderful to hear what's going on in, in the work that you're doing, Esther. And Sarah, thanks for having me back. 
You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man. I know you're doing all that you can. I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels, you got your gears. You ride around town without any fear You got your pedals, you got your brakes You always wear your helmet for safety's sake Song, I sing a song for you.